thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this morning, Andy Smerick. You've been here before. Always a pleasure to speak with you about education-related issues. And and uh, I just want to say, really, before we start into this, that um, we've been doing a lot of podcasts on education recently because as education reform is kind of sweeping the nation after the pandemic, it's uh, sort of sweeping isn't the word, like sort of filtering in to Missouri. It's not sweeping in, but, uh, you know, we still have just about every child in the state has no uh, options um, other than virtual schooling and still feels like kind of a big foreign thing. So I've been doing a lot of podcasts on the topic just to continue to try to get folks in Missouri comfortable with the idea that, you know, this has been around a while and kind of happening everywhere. And, um, and that I think, and I, this is what I, you know, I'd love to hear from you, but like, it's kind of the, the next wave of what's going to happen in, in education space, I think, in this country is going to be families choosing their schools. Would you agree? Well, I don't even know if I would call it like a new wave. We got to remember that, I, mean, I don't want to go too historical here, um, that uh, before there were even public schools, common schools, um, people were choosing their schools. And even after the common schools movement got started in the 19th century, there were always um, millions of kids in private schools. And you know the Catholic school movement really kicked off in the late 1800s. And then next thing you know, 50 years later, there were 13,000 of them. And then there were Lutheran schools and Jewish day schools. And people have always used tutors and there were boarding schools and homeschooling really, really took off in the 70s and 80s. Then we had charters and vouchers and tax credits. Now we have micro schools and hybrid homeschools and online schools and dual enrollment and on and on and on. So it just feels like it's been more evolution than revolution. Um, Now the question is, how do we make sense of all this? And what are the public programs that can get involved and fund people? And then what's going to be regulated and what's not? Um, But uh, I mean, I wouldn't agree with you in this sense that a lot of people thought that these Uh, all of these kind of choice movements, diversity movements, there would be like a wall and they would stop. If anything, we've seen more public programs and more diversification of options and modalities. And uh, partially because of COVID, we've seen even greater expansion. And now, like, I think the question for all of us is how big does this get? I mean, to put it in context, the vast majority of kids are still in traditional assigned public schools, and that probably isn't going to change for some time. But um so I don't expect the choice movement to represent 50% of the population anytime soon. But if we combine charters and private and everything else, maybe we're 15, 16, 17, 18, 20%. And maybe in the next couple of years, that gets up to 20, 25, 30%. Who yeah. knows? But it'll continue to grow. Yeah, And we also have, as I point out many times in this podcast, second generation choosers, right? So we have yes. school choice kids who are parents. And so... I don't think they're going to revert to what their grandparents did. I mean, it's, you know, that's just not going to be the case, I don't think. And, you know, uh, David Brooks had a pretty good op-ed in the New York Times recently. And it basically, basically he said, this is, uh, you know, parents are rethinking everything about education in all of those terms that you just mentioned and what they're now looking, you know, they want hybrid, they want their kids home a day or two, but not every day and micro schools and parents are rethinking it. And that you would think that, to quote, uh, efforts by governors and mayors to address these huge problems would be leading the newscast and emblazoned across magazine covers. And it doesn't seem to be, I mean, I there was supposed to be a red wave in the last election cycle, and supposedly parents were the big group that were going to really drive it because in 
Virginia, the governor's election seemed to have hinged a lot on parent groups and education related issues. But it as it's happening out in households and at the dinner table, I don't know, certainly in Missouri, I don't see our leadership saying, this is a big moment for education. I need to be doing something. So you've done a whole study on what happened with the governor's elections. And what did you find? Was it the was it the massive issue that uh, you would think it would be? Well, do you mind if I answer like the first part of your question first and then like uh, make my way into that? Because I think uh, because I I made this mistake in the first part of my career. And I'd like to counsel people away from making a mistake, like learn from all of the bad stuff I did. And the bad stuff I did was constantly talk about education reform as though it needed to be a revolution, as though everything dramatically needed to change. Um, I think that is both unwise as a policy matter, because there are lots of good things happening in education. But as a practical, pragmatic, political um, strategy, it's super unwise. Because for decades and decades and decades, surveys have shown us that the vast majority of people like their local public schools. And that's true, including parents like their local public schools. Now, when you talk generally about American education, that's when people start to say, oh, America's schools are failing. But people have said the same thing about Congress. They hate Congress in general, but they like their member of Congress. Same thing about schools. Uh, so anytime reformers begin by saying, now's a moment for dramatic change and everything needs to be shifted, Tens of millions of parents are like, wait, 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 wait. I like what's going on. These people who are acting like there needs to be a revolution have it wrong. So I think David Brooks and some other people who just know about education kind of at the periphery make a mistake by overstating things. So that I, I try to be a bit more modest and say good things are happening. We need to make some changes. There's good evolution, good kind of around the margin things that we can do. But don't scare the living daylights out of people who are trying to make schools work, who like their own schools, who maybe want a little bit of change. So let me just... Is it fine if I just begin with that and then move on to the I other love part? It. I mean, I do think that I will just add a little bit more to that, which is to say, I think parents care about what's happening to their kid in their school. Like the system at large is a much less important or even surveys have been done where parents are asked if their child goes to a public school, a private school, a charter school, and they get it wrong because they Correct. it doesn't matter what that category is. They care how their child gets off the bus that day and what is on the report card, but now you go. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> so what I was looking at is kind of related to this, which is, um, as I think, you know, like you know, I've worked in Washington, DC, like I've worked for the federal government and have done sort of like think tank stuff. But the thing that's nearest and dearest to me is um, closer to home, like state level work and trying to stay out of like the Twitter wars and just trying to like focus on stuff that's really happening and like that parents and community members care about. Um, and so because of that, I live in two worlds. I notice what national voices are saying, what people inside the Beltway are obsessed about, what cable news or um, the major uh, sub stacks are saying about education. But then I'm also wondering, well, what are governors saying or what are state legislators saying? So what I wanted to do is just take a look at um, the campaigns of the people running for governor in 2022 and 
just say, all right, I know that everyone nationally is talking about the national teacher shortage or DEI and CRT and on and on and on. But is that what like the real practitioners and like policymakers are talking about? So there were 36 gubernatorial elections in 2022, meaning 70, uh, 36 um, races, 72 total candidates, major party, 36 Republicans, 36 Democrats. So I took a look at uh, all of their campaign websites, the issues page, the priorities pages, even some videos, like what are they saying about education? I categorized all that stuff. And then I was able to break it down by, um, are you in a red state or blue state? Are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat? Are you an incumbent? Are you an, uh, a challenger? You're running an open race. And then ultimately, did you win or did you lose? Um, so I wanted to just figure out what are Republicans who are running saying? What are Democrats saying? If you're a Republican in a red state or a purple state, what are you saying? Um, and so I <laughs> end up finding some pretty interesting results. Do you want me to just tick through? A yeah. Few so of them? I mean, what are the? I mean, that's that's the meat of it. What 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 did you find? Okay. Well, the first one is uh, I always like to st start with the happy stuff. Um, there's more overlap than than you might think if you just follow the national news. Um, there. Uh, career and technical education is the big one. Um, we call it CTE. These are the pathways into the workforce. Um, sort of why, like why do you think that is? Has has the media been able to successfully get this message across? Because for a while there, I feel like we need to let folks know that not every kid has to go to college. Did that message land? Well, the way that I've lived this thing is the education reform movement for 20 years was saying college for all, college for all, college for all. And there were um, there were some good things that went along with that. We increased college going rates and more kids of color and more low income kids went to college. Um, so that was great in a lot of ways. But also turned out a lot of kids went to college who didn't want to go to college. And a lot of kids went to college and didn't graduate and they ended up with student debt. Um, a lot of people got college degrees but ended up in jobs that didn't really require a college degree. So um, there had to be some thinking anew about um, what to what needed to be done, and you know our our friend, our colleague Andy Rotherham has this wonderful line. I heard him say ten fifteen years ago, which is education policy is made by people who were good at school, and I think the um, education policy world and this kind of college for all movement reflected the sensibilities of people who were good at school, when in fact two thirds of American adults never got a college degree and many of them are doing quite fine in their careers um, people don't believe me when i say that by the way that a third of americans have a college degree right i mean they just feel like don't believe me because i'm like because in your world where everyone has a college degree but you are one third and also i've heard people say we really need to push you know kids into cte not my kid but we need to push you know what i mean like people like you said who are in the position to make the decisions you know they are still, for their own children, have this kind of college for all mindset, but it is not the reality in most of the country. It, it is not. And what I was have been so pleasantly surprised about, and this is even for my study, um, the evidence, um, the data came out, is like what I've worked in a couple different states um, on this state legislators and governors and like county commissioners, county executives, they've known for a long time that career and technical education is a great thing. Um, this is something you'll find Republican and Democratic support for. They like the idea of apprenticeships and credentials and certificates. It's only sort of like the education advocacy industry for, again, for some very good reasons, wanted more kids to go to college. And I get that. But we are now having, if that was a revolution, this is the counter-revolution of saying more CTE. So um, uh, 
Great. In general, CTE and more funding were the two issues that were widely supported among Republicans and Democrats. Um, it was even. Okay, but let's go with more funding there. That yep. is just like, a, that, is that a vote getter? I mean, because funding for education only goes up. And um, I don't like this idea of more, just the idea of more instead of better or more instead of more targeted. It's just always like more. Missouri, we are like, it's got to be more. Well, this requires some like uh, some parsing this. Um, so I'll give you a little bit of information. You tell me how much more you want to dig into this. So with CTE, like 30 candidates supported it and it was evenly split between Republicans and Democrats. Um, also, the same amount of candidates supported more funding. It was more heavily weighted towards Democrats, but it was there were like a quarter of Republicans, um, a quarter of those who supported it were Republicans. Interestingly, it was more incumbents who supported it. And get this, I'm going to repeat this because you're not going to believe me. Um, Republicans running for governor in red states were five times likelier to support more K-12 funding than Republicans running in blue states. Why? Why? Now, so you tell me, that Andy Smith, the expert, why? So I'm going to add another piece to this, um, and then we're going to put this together together because I have a hypothesis and you're going to have to test it for me. Um, let me give you this other piece, which is a lot of people have been talking about critical race theory and parents' bills of rights and all that stuff. And that was one of the top issues among Republican candidates. Interestingly, it was way, way more popular among Republicans running in blue states and purple states. It was way less popular in red states. Of the 19 candidates who uh, talked about what I called curricular reform, so this is curricular transparency, anti-CRT, um, Parents' Bill of Rights, of the 19 candidates who talked about it, only four of them won. And that's because most of them were non-incumbents and or they were running in blue states where um, it just because of the nature of the 2022 election, Democrats won in blue states and Republicans won in red states. So if you put these two pieces of information together, the funding stuff and the curricular reforms in red states, Republicans generally like their public schools. They yeah. think things are going quite well. So they see less need to fight for school choice and charter schools, which came through in my study, less need to fight for curricular reforms. And they are five times more likely to say, let's give our public schools more funding. It's in blue states where Republicans are frustrated with what's going on, that sure. they are more likely to say, let's do more charter schools, more school choice, more curricular re curricular reform, and way less likely to fund um, to fund increases in K-12 spending. So what we really have is Republicans running in blue states who are frustrated with schools, Republicans running in red states who think, I trust my school boards, I trust the state, things are going okay. Does that, does that, yeah, that sound about right to you? We didn't have a gubernatorial election, but we are a red state, uh, all red, red, red. And uh, we have a Republican incumbent, I guess. And he often talks about more funding for K-12. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in Missouri, there is a very strong group of the state education department, the um, state school boards association, the state superintendents association and, and the teachers unions. And they sort of, I feel like, the governor, they have the governor's ear more than the reformers, because the reformers, I do think, particularly in rural areas, they're more like, just leave us alone. We like our school. We don't really yes. need you 
interfering. Uh, sure, we'd like more money. We want you to pay for transportation and we want you, to, you know what I mean? Like they're like, pick up the tab on this and pick up the tab on that. But um, in, a, in and I think in our rural areas, we find that they're less likely to, you know, vote for higher property tax rates if the state, if the state will pick it up. Right. So, so it's, it's just interesting to me that, but occasionally you see a governor like a Lamar Alexander or Jeb Bush who was like, or even Governor Lee in Tennessee right now, we're like, I'm going to be an education governor and I'm going to take this on, you know, and and they really fight for it. I would think that more Republican red states would have those types of governors, but I do not see it. Well, um, going back to what I said at the very beginning, uh, what I've learned, and again, I'm a gray hair and I've made so many mistakes. Um, <laughs> if a governor were to come to me and ask for counsel, this is what I would say, is for too long, reformers have thought the way to success is beat up on the system, um, make people angry at the system, or just point out all of its flaws, and then that's going to give you the chance to bring about reforms. Incidentally, this is what um, kind of revolutionaries across time, across countries, across domains have done. You say the apocalypse is coming, and then people are more willing to accept dramatic reforms, and this is just the education version of it. Um, because so many people like their public schools and have so much experience with their public schools, um, when you tell them how awful things are, if that doesn't resonate with them, they have a tendency to turn off the people who are saying it. So instead, I think the strategy has to be um, something that's more authentic, which is listen to families, listen to community members, listen to county and local leaders. And if they say, we like our schools in these kinds of ways, that's where you begin. Then you start to say, what are the reforms that can add on to this that can make things better? Uh, and if people have, are misdiagnosing the status, if they think schools are great, but, you know, reading scores are too low or our low-income kids aren't doing well, then you need to educate them. But begin by starting where people are and make use of public sentiment and then reform from there. Don't begin by saying everything is awful. Let's do dramatic change because, you know, after 30 years, we realize that, you know, if 75 percent of people in your state really like their local public schools, you're not going to get very far by saying you guys are dumb, your public schools aren't good. Yeah, I do think that there's a lot of opportunity in a state <clears throat> like Missouri, though, where, um, particularly in rural areas, where there has got to be a significant percentage of kids uh, who are miserable in their school, for whatever reason. I mean, your kids don't all go to the same school system. My Correct. kids all use the same school system. And it did sort of, it does, I spoke to, I did a podcast with a parent of twins and her twins go to two different schools because they're not the same kid. And you, you still are going to have kids. Um, and I could, you know, you can list out a bunch of examples. They're bullied or they are, um, the school's too big or they got on the wrong side of a teacher early and can't get out of it. You know yes. what I mean? Or they got tracked into IEPs and remedial work, even though their situation is a lot more complicated and they want to do advanced math and they're not allowed to take AP class. Whatever those things are, there's so there's been many examples there as there are kids. And the idea that <clears throat> because most people are happy with their schools and what I hear in rural areas is like they're community centers and they're we're not just it's not just a school. It's you know it's the Eagles and we love them. Yep. And so I get that, but then what about the kids who are falling behind, who are struggling, who hate going to school and who don't go to school? I mean, absenteeism is way up. We've, we're missing a bunch of kids in Missouri that yep. we don't really know where they are. And what is the harm then in creating a program that serves those kids 
and I'll tell and I'm just saying that because what I hear the harm is sometimes from legislators is it will destroy air quotes public education as we know it. No, it won't. It won't. Arizona's a fully open system and most kids still, I guess most, I don't know if it's more than 50% or less than 50%, but many still go to their assigned public school. Arizona's got a public school system. It's alive and well. Correct. So um, I agree with everything you said. The way that I put these pieces together is to say something along the lines of um, uh, in your state, if most legislators think that families like their schools, which is probably true, you can agree with them. But it's also the case that what you said at the beginning, I think, is the experience of just about every parent that I've talked to, which is um, uh, not all kids work well in the exact same schools, even kids from the exact same families. And anyone who has kids pretty much has lived something like that. And so if you begin by talking about how do we make sure that uh, we have an education system that can serve all kids well, even if that means that their local public school, which is quite good in many cases, isn't serving them all that well, what can we do to make sure that those kids are well served? And whereas 30 years ago where there were no charter schools or there were no private school choice programs, it was a mystery. And then a lot of opponents of school choice said, it will destroy the system. Well, thank goodness today, uh, this is the second part of your answer to them, which I would recommend, is all the apocalyptic claims about how school choice was going to destroy the public education system have been shown time and time and time again in state after state after state to just not be true. Um, public schools are still thriving in many places. Lots of people still like them, but we have more kids than ever before who are in schools that they like. And on top of that, because we have tax credits and vouchers and increasingly ESAs, we have the ability to use public money so some kids can do dual enrollment, maybe be in their public school, but take some classes elsewhere to take yeah. some state money and get some extra tutoring or buy different types of books, um, do pods, do hubs, do hybrid homeschooling. There are all these different kinds of options where people can tailor the educational experience to their needs. And that doesn't mean that 90% of kids are going to leave their public schools. It might mean that an additional five or 10 or 15% could do something different, but that means more options for more kids and more success. Yeah. So what we're pondering right now in Missouri is open enrollment because we don't have it. And, you know, 40 some states do. And <clears throat> yep. yet we have a very convoluted limited if you live within X number of miles of a border. And anyway, we don't really have it. And, um, you know, the pushback is, oh, it's going to bankrupt some schools and it's going to um, cause these wealthy uh, school districts to take on these low performing kids from poor school districts. And it's going to ruin their test scores and all of these things, which Again, I try to make the point, we have decades of information about this. This is not new anymore. Missouri, we are the show me state, so we like it to we like to go last. But we're getting there. <laughs> but we have so much information on states like Oklahoma and Wisconsin and Indiana where this has been going on for Minnesota it started in 89. Um it serves the kids who need it. And most yes. of the kids who need it, it that leave it alone. Right. So it does not cause this massive, you know, yeah, you might get, um, I think Wisconsin's got 80,000 kids and Minnesota too, somewhere around 10% of kids, they move around. But for the most part, things stay, stay as they are, but you serve those kids who are not currently being served. And the fear around that is the thing that I really have a hard time understanding. Well, uh, so I'm a conservative, both in my politics, but also in my temperament. Um, and so I like I like prudence. I like small adaptive changes. I don't like when people talk about revolution because <clears throat> I think that ends up serving kind of technocrats and revolutionaries more than it serves like people who really need help. So um, 
I like the idea if people um, appreciate their schools, they want to be cautious and not do anything that can be dramatic. So my heart is with you, and I think the data is with you, that in most places, if you do inter-district choice, open enrollment, a small percentage of people will, will participate, but the vast majority of families are still going to be content. One thing that you can do in these cases is tell legislators that and then say, just to be double, triple, quadruple sure, let's make sure we phase this in or we cap it initially, or we just make this a pilot program so you legislators can be sure that this isn't going to dramatically change the system forever. And let's say in the first five years, at most 10% of the um, state's students can participate in it, just so you know that it's not going to bankrupt anybody. And they'll say, oh, well, 10%, that's not all that bad. And then after five years, they realize that only 5% of kids participated yeah. in it. Yeah. Like, uh, um, I used to say that people were unnecessarily fearful. Now I recognize that if they like what they have and it's worked for them and their families, they are very cautious about anything that could threaten it. And so um, accept that. Uh, accommodate their concerns and say, yep, I get it. Let's make sure that we do this prudently and let's phase it in, do some sort of pilot program. And then uh, that can take their fears away. We already have this overly cautious, in my opinion, funding formula that every district gets to use the highest enrollment they've had for the last three years. And during the pandemic, the last four years. So kids could move around for three or four years without anyone really noticing because you can keep using your highest enrollment. Um, that is a very very generous, generous sort of hold harmless that Missouri already has. But um, so we're, no one's going to feel any pain for years, but there's still, I don't know, there's a lot of resistance. One last thing I want to talk to you about, though, that I think is intriguing. This country is losing K-12 enrollment. It's declining. Yes. Some state, it's just a fact. And it's a combination of a bubble going through that's gone yes. and uh, birth rates and changing demographics. Declining birth rates across all demographics and changing demographics. And this is just a fact. Declining K-12 enrollment. And uh, some states, it's declining faster than others. And Missouri is one of those. So we uh, have already lost, I think, 5 to 10%. We're supposed to lose another 10%. We've, we're gonna, we always, I guess I used to think we had 900 to a million, 900,000 to a million students. We're going to be down closer to 750 pretty, pretty soon, like by 2030. Mm. And um, we're not, we don't have a declining enrollment mindset. And I think that when you look at gubernatorial races, I just wonder if you think there's ever going to, I I would think that Missouri would start to feel a little competitive heat from the states around us, because as a family, particularly with more remote work and everything else, if you have a choice for where to raise your kids, you know, you're going to want to have a lot of education options. You're going to want to have a strong education system. And uh, we don't have either. And so I would think that in Missouri, the governor and the state legislature, the, the, like the state level policy, well, who cares about federal policy? State level policy could become within education more competitive across states because there's fewer kids to compete for. And, um, you know, you're going to be in this decline. You're you're going to have to fire teachers. I had my friend Chad Edelman on the other day. I don't know if you know Chad or not, but he's- a He and I worked together for years. I, I'm a huge fan of his. He and uh, Marguerite Rosa at the Edgenomic Lab are calling 2024 and 2025 the years of bloodletting. So teachers, you know, we're going to need a smaller teaching workforce as we talk about teacher shortages. And we're going to need fewer school buildings and those kind of things. And yet we still are in this like, we'll only ever have more kids kind of mindset. And and it's not true. <laughs> so 
do you think that that will ever push education into like the state level elections in a way that, um, you know, we're going to be competing for families? Possibly. Um, here's the way that I've been thinking about this recently, because I've been doing some higher education work over the past couple um, years uh, in, in my state, is that um, higher education is facing the exact same thing because of just this bubble that is going through that there had been... <clears throat> excuse me, a lot more college-going kids in previous cohorts. There are just simply fewer of them than in the past. Um, higher education institutions that were built and then grew to accommodate X amount of students now have to deal with uh, competing for 0.9x. And so they have to think about how do we right-size ourselves? And this has enabled them or caused them or forced them to think creatively about can we go after different types of students? So now we talk about non-traditional students, so older, like career changers or yeah. people who want to you know, plus up their career. Um, it's also caused them to think much more about certificates and credentials and badges as opposed to just four-year degrees. So it has um, necessity as the mother of invention at the higher education level. Um, now, in some states, this is really interesting because so many public uh, universities, colleges are dependent on tuition. So they have to earn their students. There are some states where the state provides more dollars, but in virtually all cases, the vast majority of dollars come through um, tuition. In states, and based on what you're saying in Missouri, if it's the case that a lot of these school districts feel like held harmless, that they don't have to change much, that they're going to get the exact same um, amount of funding no matter what, then that can actually um, gum up the works in terms of sure. innovation. Um, and what I think is most interesting along these lines is having local leaders and state leaders think in terms of how do we make our state as attractive as humanly possible for the jobs that we need, for the families we currently have, and then the families who we would like to move here. Um, now, I don't know like how Missouri's leaders think about like losing population to out-migration, immigration. I don't know what kind of like the strategies are for like- I have no idea myself. I feel like I talk about all the time, but no one else does. So um, having- Having these strategies about um, we want to get these types of corporations or we want to start these kinds of industries um, or we want these to be the hubs of innovation. Uh, what that means is like the right types of tax policy, right types of housing policy, transportation policy, but also schools policies sure. and having these state leaders think in terms of um not just the schools that we had for the economy of 1950, but having schools for the types of um, uh, families who can move around a bunch, but maybe some of whom work at home, some of them are more educated, they might want to do some sort of like a disaggregated type of schooling. This yeah. can just be a way to encourage them to think about how do we support hybrid homeschooling or dual enrollment or pods and hubs and whatever else it might be, whether it's through tax credits or ESAs or something. And again, it doesn't have to be at the expense of the traditional system. It can be an addition to it, a supplement to it, but saying that we got to get we have to make sure that we are as attractive as possible. And if we're losing population already, um, we got to do something different on the school's front. Yeah. The, the you know, cross your arms and stomp your foot and say our schools are fine. I think that's not the best strategy. So we'll see what happens. I appreciate your time and all your super smart takes on everything, Andy. I always do. Um, you can have, well, I would come back anytime you invite me, whenever you want to have me say so much smart things. I love it. I do appreciate it. I know you're busy. So thanks for joining us and we absolutely will have you back. Thanks guys. Bye.